0: There's plenty of seats all the way through, really. Um, but if people would like to help, that right? Okay. Oh, yep. Come in. There's plenty of seats. That's great. <laughs> okay. <coughs> right. Hello, everybody. Wow, it was a yay rather than a hello, but I'll take it. Right, welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. Now, what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we invite people to come and stand up and do some tragedy. We talk to storytellers, spoken word artists, comedians, and more, and, and ask them to come and do their stuff here. Now, we don't know what they're going to do, so that's exciting. Uh, we're all in this. I'm in the same boat as, as all of you lot. We don't know what's going to happen on this stage, but one thing we do know is that it's going to have some tragedy involved in it because you walk down the street normally in your life tragedy can happen to you at any time right you you can't you can't plan for it well tonight we can plan for it it's happening here on this stage so we're going to hear some tragedy but we're going to be but it's going to be a mix of people so there'll be some laughs as well as some tears and stand-up tragedy we're a live show but but we're also a podcast which means that although we've got quite a decent audience size here uh we're we're broadcasting to an even bigger audience. So it's quite fun for performers to come here because even if there's no one here and it's a tragic- tragic-ist of gigs that there could be, there is still uh, a big audience there listening. But it's good to have you live because you're gonna see it. They won't get to see it. Uh, so that's, that's their problem. I like to slag them off uh, in front of them. They can hear me now. Uh, anyway, never mind that. So yes, Stand Up Tragedy is about tragedy. Uh, so that's your content No, Expect tragedy to happen. Um, but we're also we're doing lots of things up in Edinburgh this year. We've got a really great lineup. So this is, I, I should say before I go into this, this is the sadmin section. It's not it's not the most interesting, but it is the most informative. So yes, we've got lots of other shows happening at the Fringe. We've got some special editions of Stand Up Tragedy. So make sure you get a, a flyer from us and have a look and see who else is performing. And if you go to our website, www.standuptragedy.co.uk, you can have a look through all the lineups that are coming up. So that's the shows we're doing here at 7.30 apart from on Tuesdays where we have special recordings of another podcast I do called Getting Better Acquainted. Uh, Hello everybody, come in. There's plenty of tragedy to go around. Okay, so yes, the other show I do is happening in here on Tuesdays instead of Stand up Tragedy, Getting Better Acquainted, which is a a conversation podcast, which today was mentioned in the Financial Times, in the same breath as Desert Island Discs and WTF with Mark Maron, thus making all of my dreams come true, apart from it being in the Financial Times. Um, So yes, um, so check out, check that out on Tuesdays. On uh, We've got coming up on Saturday, we've got Tragedy Fails Better with Paula Varjak and Dan Simpson. And then on Monday, Tra- Stand Tragedy will be hosted by the amazing Samantha Mann. Aww. Now, if you don't know what that name means, you should come because that name is the best host we're going to ever have on this stage. Much better than me. So, yes... We're part of the PBH Free Fringe, and that means that it's free to come in. Art, which is free at point of contact, is something I really believe in. But, of course, you may pay if you would like to when you leave. You can donate some money to us, uh, and that's quite important. It's important for two reasons. Number one, uh, a couple of years ago, I uh, lost my job because of the cuts, and now I'm trying to struggle and make it as an artist, and I haven't got any money. So it's important to me and my partner who's in the room because we need to pay our rent. Uh, so that's a good reason but if you want some more kind of bigger wider big society one might even say reasons to give to the arts at the moment it is that it's a tragic time in our country in terms of the politics going on and it's the time to give back not in a big society way which i mentioned earlier on because That's bullshit, but in a a kind of giving to the arts is the best thing that you can do at this moment so we can spread the tragedy and talk about the tragedy, talk about the stuff that's going on. So yes, so now um, the the Submin section's uh, being enjoyed very much, I can see. So yes, Um, (laughs) there we go. So you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter, at Stand Up For Tragedy. Our hashtag is Tragic Moments, and you can listen to us on our podcast, uh, and have and share the podcast, and tell people about it. So that's the end of the t- of the admin. Well done for getting through it. I mean, I didn't even mention my show at twelve oh five in the Cabaret Voltaire, my solo show, because uh, that's that's uh, that show is even more tragic than this one. If you feel that this isn't sad enough, come to that show. Right. So without further ado, let's have our first performer on. She is doing a show called Adventures in Menstruating at 7.30 at the Stafford Center. Pretty much every day apart from tonight because she's taken the night off to be here with us. Put your hands together, everybody, for Chella
1: Quinn! Hi guys, hello. Hello, hi. So um, I'm Chella and I do a show called Adventures in Menstruating. Uh, It's bloody funny. Uh, it, uh, it really flows. <laughs> it's period comedy. It, you know, well, it, it starts heavy, <laughs> but it ends light. You know.
2: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>
1: Blood sister. All <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so um, I do a show called Adventures in Menstruating because I, I like science comedy. And I do uh, a lot of different types of science comedy, like sex education and stuff about dinosaurs and planets and particle physics, because, hey, who doesn't love to hear about that kind of thing on a Wednesday night? But yeah, exactly. Thank you. But um, but I started this uh, this project um, uh, as a zine. Adventures of Menstruating uh, was actually a fanzine, and it started 10 years ago. So this is the copy I made 10 years ago. It's a print zine. And uh, the only tragic thing in any of my zines or any of my shows or comedy about menstruation is this one story. Uh, And since I wrote it 10 years ago, I really wanted to share it here tonight because I wouldn't be taking a show called Adventures of Menstruating here without this one sad story. Uh, So uh, think about for a minute, uh, how you learned about menstruation when you were a kid. Uh, If anyone ever had any menstrual experiences of their own, think back. Uh, If you were uh, taught in school and the boys and girls were separated and the trans kids were like, what the hell? and uh, because, of course, some men menstruate and some women don't uh, and uh, gender's not binary. But, of course, the way they teach it in school is not particularly brilliant and the ideas people come away with are not particularly helpful. And, of course, advertising doesn't help at all. Uh, and there's a real stigma around... Um, well, I'll get to that. For my first adventure in menstruating, I will recount my leakage horror story. It was the winter before I turned 13 and I begged my parents to drive me through a blizzard to a remote neighborhood for my new friend Stephanie's birthday party sleepover. After consulting maps and trying to coerce me into staying home, they finally gave in to my pleading on the grounds that I was a bookish loner and needed to make more friends. You can laugh at that, I was really nerdy when I was a kid. They were like, oh God, a blizzard, fine, sure. I packed my favorite pink Garfield nightshirt, the one that had my star sign Aries on it because I thought astrology would help me make more friends back then. (laughs) And it listed Aries qualities, bold, direct, qualities I did not yet possess because the date and time you are born have no bearing on your personality. We finally navigated this winding country road with drifts piled three (coughs) feet high and most driveways obliterated by snowplow residue and arrived at a beautiful, massive house with all its lights blazing. My parents watched me ring the bell and go inside, and then they drove home to a quiet night of their own. It began all smiles. I was cheerfully introduced by Stephanie to her perfect parents and her cousin, Greg. He was 19, with powdery smooth skin, dark eyes, fluffy brown hair, and wearing jeans and a cream cashmere turtleneck sweater. Stephanie told me he was a model, and that he'd moved in with them so that he could commute to New York more easily. I'd never met a real model before. I thought he ought to be in a ski lodge, drinking cocoa with some hairsprayed woman on a soap opera, while ambient music played in the background. Sadly, Stephanie led me away from the glamorous grown-ups and down to a different wing of the house, where the other girls were. We listened to music and ate potato chips and drank soda. I think we ate pizza and made up dance routines, slumber party stuff. Then Stephanie showed us her room. It was fairly normal, a bit pink, kind of cluttered. She had a dressing table with a mirror above it, and we all looked at her jewelry and makeup together. I held up her earrings to my ears and looked in the mirror to see what they'd be like. I remember smiling at my reflection. We eventually wandered downstairs to her finished basement and set up our sleeping bags. (coughs) Right after that, it became one of those parties where everyone turned on one person. That person was me. This was just about the worst time I can remember. All the girls seemed to suddenly start whispering Giggly at first, but then gradually shifting to a more sinister hiss. After some pointed looks and snorts in my direction, I was finally confronted with my crime. Why are you trying on my earrings? You shouldn't... This is really how she talked. (laughs) Why are you trying on my earrings? You shouldn't touch other people's property. And it's unhygienic, Stephanie whined. Inwardly, I was outraged. Everyone was touching her stuff. I was a tiny bit relieved though, to hear that this was the transgression that had resulted in my sudden pariah status. I grinned inanely, pulled back my hair and said, no I didn't, see, I don't even have my ears pierced. (sighs) In my preteen mind, this should have resulted in everyone laughing it all off like a big misunderstanding, you know, Scooby Doo style. Instead, Stephanie's features sharpened (coughs) into a narrow eyed sneer. You don't have your ears pierced yet? What are you, some kind of baby? I thought I'd finally seen the positive to my mother's piercing moratorium. I was painfully (coughs) wrong. The teasing continued for another hour until things wound down naturally as the sugar wore off and the other girls started to feel sleepy. At this point, Stephanie declared that she was cold and didn't like sleeping bags and that she was going back up to her room to sleep in her own bed. We all grumpily watched her go. As I readjusted my sleeping bag, a couple of the other girls turned to look at me. After a few moments, one of them said, do you want to know why Stephanie was really picking on you? God, did I?
2: Hmm.
1: I said yes anyway. You have a big blood stain on the back of your nightgown. Haven't you ever gotten your period before? I turned my nightshirt around to look. Now, okay, this night was great. It had a picture of Garfield on the front, the front of Garfield. But on the back, it had Garfield's back. Oh, <laughs> so I was Garfield. And Garfield had his period. <laughs> the instant social death felt totally justified. It felt like my own body had betrayed me. I felt sabotaged. All of my begging and pleading with my parents to help me fit in. Sabotaged by my own stupidity. Well, it felt like my own stupidity. But stupidity for what? not wearing a super thick maxi pad every day and night just in case we didn't have that kind of money i did consider it i'd only ever gotten my period about three times and was totally irregular i cried i cried and cried and they just looked at me these girls didn't know me well enough to swoop round me and offered me advice and tissues and a new nightie one or two of them haltingly apologized the rest of the household was asleep so there was no offer of a towel or a maxi pad or change of clothes, although I somehow couldn't imagine Stephanie parting with any of hers. It had carried on snowing and my parents would be unreachable until after the plows returned in the morning to release me from this night of horror. My one consolation was that I could bleed in peace into my own sleeping bag and not worry about staining anyone else's things. After all, according to Stephanie, that would be unhygienic. I'd never told this story to anyone before. I can see now that I wasn't alone really then. I had generations of girls with me, but we were all equally isolated. Girl hate is bad, but advertising messages telling us to whisper and be discreet and (coughs) keep it secret are way worse. And those advertising messages come to us in schools, too, where we get leaflets and booklets and free samples. Those girls weren't hating me. They were fearing their ultimate nightmare, and I'd just shown it to them. Menstrual taboos need to be broken. Oh yeah, I wouldn't want you to um, think I'd ever implicated Garfield into any of this. (laughs) Um, Because I really still love Garfield. And I did then and I do now because he rocks. (laughs) I'm trying to end on a positive note, but um, I do still think about that from time to time. And I remember wishing I had a superhero to help me. By day, a mild-mannered pharmacist, but... When trouble is about to strike, she becomes Overflow, helping women everywhere to fight ridicule, overcome embarrassment, and to boldly wear light colors during their periods. (laughs) And actually, um, ever since then, I've started using the word menstruator, and not just woman, uh, and I've created uh, Stains TM, a removable stain you can wear on your clothing as you see fit. (laughs) A fashion statement that really says something, and that something is, screw you, Madison Avenue. I'm taking this one back. I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve and my blood on my pants. I'm going to reclaim the stain, reclaim my blood, and reclaim my period. Because people, I am telling you, red is the new black. Thank you very much. You can uh, wear a stain uh, by downloading one online at stainstm.com. And Stainstm is the spoof sponsor of (laughs) Adventures in Menstruating. So if you come to the show, you will get a free stain kindly provided by the CEO of Stainstm, which is me, Chela Quint. Thanks very much. Bye. Shella Quince, everybody! Okay,
0: Right, so our next performer, she is doing a show called A Date With Destiny at 11 o'clock at the Underbelly Med Quad, uh, not on the 18th. And her name is Lydia King! It's actually called A Date With Density. Oh,
2: that's right. right. great okay so I'm gonna start us off with um one of my one of my mantras this is a mantra I do to get myself through the difficult situations hopefully you can use it too we're all dying we're all dying every day out there in the world but um, I don't often get it back I do get insulted quite a lot Um, I often get compared to being a man now there's nothing wrong with being a man I love men I love men so much I want to put them inside me right so it's not that I'm anti-men I just don't really want to look like one um I once got told that I looked exactly keyword exactly like Matt Berry Mm, if you don't know who Matt Berry is he's a very funny very talented man he's also a big fat man don't really want to look exactly like Matt Berry not a compliment uh, I also, at work once, a guy came up to me, saw a photo of me with no makeup on. And usually when that happens, usually when that happens people say, You look really tired. Are you ill? <laughs> no, nope, it's just my face. Um, but this guy got creative, and he said, Oh, Lydia, she's, uh, she's a handsome woman. Hmm. Handsome is an adjective used pretty much exclusively to describe men. I would not say that as a compliment. Just say, that's a woman. Just take the descriptor out. That's a woman. Yes, that's a handsome woman. Fuck you. Uh, I also got told after a gig once, um, a guy came up to me and said, can I offer you some constructive criticism? <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. Definitely the response should have been, no, thank you. But uh, I said, yeah, sure. And he went, I have to say, you're just, you're not really ugly enough to play the victim.
3: Oh.
2: <laughs> I mean, that just grows on you, that one. That's like a little two-handed. Not, not ugly Enough. I mean, you're on the spectrum of ugly, but I just not quite far enough down that road for me to f- have any real sympathy for you or any of the experiences you've had. So that's a treat. Uh, two of my all-time favorite insults came within about five minutes of each other. I was in a club for a friend's hen do, and um, I was at the bar getting some water. It was about three o'clock in the morning, and a guy, uh, two guys next to me at the bar. One of them turns to his friend and says, "Oh, mate, is that your girlfriend?" And the guy next to me looks at me and then goes, oh, mate, no, obviously not. But I thought, eh, because I don't give a shit what two random fucking dudes in a club think, but I don't want to stand next to it, right? So I walked round to the other side of the bar, and on my way round to the other side of the bar, I got stopped by a very tall, very handsome man, appropriate use of the word handsome, handsome man who stopped me and said, hey, you're really sexy. And I thought, eh? Because to be honest, at 3 a.m., those two statements have about equal weight with me. Uh, But I made out with them anyway, because a girl's got to eat, right? Anyway, while we're kissing, as we're making out, his friend comes over, taps him on the shoulder, interrupts us kissing to say, oh, no, mate, did the other girl go? (laughs) Oh, well, worst case scenario, maybe you can shag this one. Sorry, worst case scenario. Surely if the objective is to pull, the worst case scenario is not pulling. Or pulling some kind of horrendous skank who's gonna piss in your bed and then steal your iPhone. I mean, as it so happens, I have supreme dominion over my bladder, and I am very middle class, I already own my own iPhone. So, um, but it's fine, in those situations, I just have myself a, uh, a cheeky little one of these. I'm having a party and it's gonna, gonna be so fun. I'm having a party and the guest list's only one. I'm having a party where I don't pick up the phone. I'm having a pity party on my own. I'm having a party and it will be so nice. I will bring the gin and I will bring the ice. I'll play some games, like pin the tail on the donkey. Except the pin is gin and the donkey, well it's having a party where only sad songs play as I eat my way through the all-you-can-eat buffet. I'm having a party where I cry and watch TV. I'm having a pity party just for Uh, That was all I was going to do for you, but I've realised I've actually got a little bit more time, right? So I'm going to do one of my other songs for you. So um, I was, and the thing is, this is a big part of my comedy show, but since we're at Stand-Up Tragedy, which seems just a little bit more honest than a a general comedy show. um, So my my show, A Date With Density, was kind of born of going on so many horrendous dates that my friends were laughing at these stories, and I kind of decided to turn them into something useful and something powerful that I could then own. Um, so I'm really inspired by, I'm so sorry, I've forgotten your name, the girl who was just on before me. Chella. I'm so inspired by her and just her absolute frank honesty in front of a room full of people. It's amazing. So um, I'm just going to be honest with you. It came from it came from kind of a place of feeling really shitty about myself and kind of undesirable and very frustrated and very lonely. And, um, and actually, I ended up turning it into um, a comedy show that seems to be going down pretty well. And... If you've ever tried online dating and had a shit time, like, come see my show, because um, believe me, I get you. Um, this song I wrote about um, a guy that I, he was a friend of mine, and I was sleep- I started sleeping with him. And um, I basically was in love with him by like the second time we'd had sex, which is a slightly accelerated timeline, right? It's because we'd been friends, I had a lot of invested emotion in him. So I sort of went friends, 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 bang, bang, life partner. <laughs> And he went friends, 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 bang, bang, friends who bang.
4: <laughs>
2: not really, not not ideal for me. Um, but anyway, I wrote I wrote this song about that situation. So um, this is one. I only do two parody songs in my show. All the others are original. This is a this is a parody. So please don't sue me, Katy Perry. <laughs> you think I'm pretty? with
0: Everybody, and there we go. I mean, that's why I do a tragedy show because I take puns and I ruin them and do the original version of them. So, yes, right. So, our next performer is performing at uh, Immigrant Diaries at uh, 10 o'clock at the assembly rooms, uh, not on the 19th. Uh, put your hands together, everybody, for Sanjay Majum. You may have noticed I kind of host like very quiet then
5: wrestling. Wow, good. Evening all, evening all. Any reverb? No. <laughs> Bit of reverb delay. Uh, good evening. This is um, this is uh, one of uh, a few gigs I'm going to be doing at uh, in Edinburgh this year. Um, my name's Sanjay. I'm from the brown half of Glasgow. Okay. Anyone from Glasgow here? Yeah. It's the best city in Scotland, in case you've just come from outside. But I was actually born in Kenya, in Africa. Oh. Yes, you well, Yes. My sister's over here. <laughs> now, at that time, I don't know if you know, but it was the 70s, and uh, Kenya um, and Uganda were, was quite a dangerous place. Idi Amin was killing people, chopping off their ears, and drinking in glasses of milk. If you want to know what Idi Amin was like, you go to that Sky Nigerian channel, and he's, um, have you ever watched Sky Nigerian channel when the guy says, hey, pass the ball, and I'll kill you? So it's a bit like that. Idi Amin was just a crazy guy who didn't like Indian people. So all the Indian people decided to come to UK. So from Uganda and from Kenya, we all came here. And that was the tragedy. We had to get out of Africa, penniless, all the way into the United Kingdom. And we ended up in Bonnie Scotland, which is the most beautiful country in the world. But I ended up in a place called East Kilbride. Does anybody know East Kilbride? (laughs) It's a complete shithole of Scotland. And on East Bride, walking down East Bride, there was no Asian people in East Cobride. so I felt like I was just a scene out of Planet of the Apes when I walked down the street it was like hey what the hell is that check that mummy's a chocolate man <laughs> so all my days all of a sudden I got to realize that people call me certain words and those words are things like chocolate man you black bastard and things like that and we grew up sort of having to put up with that sort of racism. But I don't really use that as an excuse because when I was at school, when we got there, unfortunately the teacher brought me to the front of the class and as usual, nobody. Dave's got it right, but nobody seems to get my name right. So she said, we got a new boy in the class and his name is Sanjay Mashnu. So straight away, I'm going to the front of the class, it's Sanjay Maju, and I'm playing the xylophone. And remember, I'm just the first day of class, I'm the first Asian in the school, and the school decided to play a wee xylophone tune. And unfortunately, it was to the tune of the number one hit of the week, Boney M, There's a Brown Girl in the Ring. <laughs> so unfortunately, as I'm playing xylophone, the whole class is singing, there's a brown boy in the class, tra la 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 la. So anyway, um, there's always some wee stupid dead in the class, you know. and I had Jason Wiley. Jason Wiley was the craziest wee guy. He was like an inbred guy from Musical Bride, with cross eyes, he goes, hey, big boy. See you, chocolate man, right? Are you a Protestant? Or are you a Catholic? And I said, uh, well, Jason, because I was still English at that time. <laughs> or or Kenyan. I think I'm a Sikh. And Jesus goes, Yeah, fucking Are you are you a, are you a Catholic Sikh or a or a Protestant Sikh? So I had no answer to that. <laughs> we ended up moving from East Kilbride to Pollock Shields. Does anybody know Pollock Shields? It's a place in Glasgow where you play spot the white man. There's hardly any white people there, so I'm in Pollock Shields, and it was like I scene at Planet of the Apes. There was Jar Jar Binks, there was Jabba the Hutt. I mean, everybody's in Pollock Shields. In fact, in those days, they were gonna rename it Pakistan. <laughs> it, was that, it was that good or bad. But I went to school, and school was fantastic because there was an eclectic mix of people at school. There was Chinese, there was Indians, there was white people, and the, it was good immigration in those days, you know? Not like the immigration today, but what we used to have was gang fights. You know, we used to have gang fights, and the gang fights were like the Chinese would get together, the whites would get together, the Asians would get together, and the two Afro-Caribbeans <laughs> would get together there in the school. And gang warfare was brilliant because when we were fighting, it was like a scene at Power Rangers. Everyone did the moves, but there's no physical contact. You know when Spider-Man hits the floor? <laughs> but, but anyway. So I had a great experience when I was growing up in, in Pollock Shields because it gave me the it gave me the opportunity to sort of mix in with the crowd. And when I mixed in with the crowd, my mum, in order for me to get an identity, sent me to the best place in Glasgow, the Glasgow Art Centre. Does anybody know the Glasgow Art Centre? Now the Glasgow Art Centre was a fantastic place of just Asian arts, Chinese arts, fantastic. And we learned Bangra. Now does anybody know what Bangra music is? Bangra music is the best Indian folk music. It's a very gay dance. It's one of these dances that when we started doing Bangra, we didn't want to do it because it was extremely gay. But we carried on doing it and tonight I'm gonna to show you some of the moves. Are you up for it? Yeah. yeah? You got bits some. thing about banger music right is that um, you have to you have to get the moves right okay so what one of the best move we got taught was flicking your fingers and moving <laughs> now i know one or two of you here because this man over here is somebody is okay so if you're up for it i'd like somebody stand up are you in for this so that what we have to try and do here right is you have to right leg up bang and this is what happens okay so are you ready are you ready for me to do it And then i'm going to try and get one or two of you to do it, okay so the, the two steps, the two steps. One, two, one, two. And then the other step is one, two, three, four. Okay, are you ready? You can even do it in your seats. Are you ready? With a clap, bang. All right. Bang. Of those awkward moments where you think, although I got a bit out that one again. But anyway, uh, we actually ended up forming a Bangra band when we were kids, and we played Tea in the Park. And I, I absolutely used to tell my kids that dad had a gig in Tea in the Park. But what I didn't say to the kids was, Dad's played to an audience of zero at Tea in the Park. <laughs> because what happened was, there's about 10 people in Bombay Talkie, which was our Bangra band, it was our Punjabi folk music band. And when we went to Tea in the Park, we were put into the talent tent. Now the talent tent is a tent where they put the rubbish pants. And there was about 15 people coming to watch us. And as we went on stage, and we're jumping up and down, and if you could if you could drive a van, you could get into Bombay Talkie. Um, when we went on stage, we ended up just about to perform. We could hear in the distance, ladies and gentlemen, Manic Street Preachers. So out of the tent, there was only three people left watching us, of which half of them were completely out on drugs going, And then about five minutes later, as we're going into our first track, ladies and gentlemen, Dogstar. And we'd lost the three people we were playing to an audience of absolutely fuck all. And I'm very proud of that we played to an audience of fuck all at Tea in the Park. But we also, one of the biggest things for me was I ended up working in an Indian restaurant. Why I love working in an Indian restaurant because the stories are great. When you work in an Indian restaurant, you get the full experience of life. Now I had a wee guy, we used to get a crazy guy called Scissors that used to come to the restaurant. And Scissors, uh, are we okay for time? For two minutes. And I'm just gonna go this quickly. Scissors would always come to a restaurant completely out on drugs. And my manager stopped me and don't say, Scissors, you can't get in, you're drunk. So scissors would say, Ah, you fire you black bastard. Those three famous words. Then about five minutes later, Scissors is trying to get through the fire exit door. And he's trying to get through fire, and we we grab says, Scissors, you can't get in. You black bastard, get away from me. And so scissors is running off, and this scissors chap is true, because he used to scissor people in partying in those days, you know. And about half an hour later, scissors is running through the kitchen. And my man says, Scissors, you can't get in. And scissors goes, You yeah, black how many fucking restaurants you work in? <laughs> anyway, listen, thanks very much. I've enjoyed my first gig. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> Sanjay Mathew, everybody. Right, okay. So our next performer, she's got lots of shows. So she's got Phone Whore, which is at 7.05. She's got Slut Revolution, which is at 9.35. She's got Smut Slam Cabaret, which is at 11.15. All of those are in the evening. All of those are in Sweet Grass Market, but check because there's some days off at different times. So check to see that she's on that night. They're amazing shows. I've seen, well, I've seen Phone Whore and that is an amazing show. And I believe the other two to also be amazing. Put your hands together for Cameron Moore.
4: So, as you might imagine from the title of my show, Phone Whore, uh, it's based on my work as a phone sex operator. That is something that I I do do when I'm touring back in North America uh, and when I'm off tour. Uh, it's, uh, it's only slightly marginally better paid than being a fringe performer, <laughs> but somehow they all mo- you know it all levels out to a baseline just below poverty. so that's fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I used to when I first started doing phone sex, I used to be a little bit ashamed about it because there's a certain amount of stigma about doing sex work and uh, phone sex is definitely misunderstood. Um, and, and after all, it's not something that you would necessarily, uh, pick out of the lineup at the high school career fair, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, oh yeah, librarian, uh, phone sex, that's the one. <laughs> Nobody plans to be a sex worker, I doubt it. I, I just don't believe it, that's just a rare thing. Um, I had started out uh, with a lot of different careers. Um, a food writer, uh, did, did waitressing for a little while, did library work. And then uh, I was in marketing at a textbook publishing company and uh, got laid off in that famous recession of 2008, 2009. At the end of that recession, there were, you know, 200 applications for one waitressing job, and uh, I, I was um, on the verge of, of serious like uh, food scarcity for a couple of months. But a friend of mine finally said. Um, you know, you have a great voice. You should do. You should do phone sex. Here's the website where all the companies are hiring. Um, and at first, I said, oh, you know, who does phone sex? I'm a feminist. Uh, I didn't think that was an option. Um, but I, I, I had, I had to do it. I had to get some money. So I went with the first, first legitimate offer, and um, I'm still with that company. Uh, it, it turned out to be like I started it because I was desperate. I kept doing it because it turned out to be something I was very good at. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, it, it rewards like two, two, two personality traits that aren't often taken seriously out in the real world a motor mouth and a gutter mind Um, (laughs) so uh it actually turns out to be a great profession for me uh aside from the uh the crushing isolation and the uh and and uh you know the low pay but in other respects (laughs) just to put the silver lining on in other respects it's quite nice i get to work on my scripts i get to uh i get to uh fuck around i mean uh network on Facebook, <laughs> um, you know, I memorize my lines. Uh, it's all, it's, I get to wear pajamas all day. Um, so it's all right. Um, I think people imagine that it's, it's mostly like terrible talking with men about their dicks. Um, I think that's partly because, uh, because society hates men's sexuality so much. Um, they think that the men who call in are creeps and losers and God, you must suffer. Don't you hate men after all that? And uh, the answer is no. I mean, if you look at at phone sex, as you would look at any other service industry. It's just service and you are delivering a service and you have good customers and you have bad customers. And the bad customers are assholes no matter what kind of fantasy they're playing with. All right, the bad customers are jerks. And in in the restaurant equivalent, it would be like the guy who sits over in the corner and takes up like two hours of your time to eat a fucking piece of toast. and, And he calls you names the whole time and pinches your ass when you walk back. So that's an asshole customer, right? I have guys like that in phone land where they're just jerks, and I hate to talk to them. Um, if you ever want to look me up on my blog, I sometimes write up some of my calls. I do like a call of the day. You can read all about it. There are people like Extreme Top, who's so extreme, but he's an asshole. Um, it's independent of, of, of him wanting to staple gun me to the wall, for example. Ooh, that just got dark really fast. All right, So, um, so there are asshole customers, but then there are good customers. Um, If you've worked in in restaurants or bars, you know these people where you're happy to see them come in and you know that you'll have a good conversation and you know that they will buy lots of drinks and in the States they will tip you and and they'll just be pleasant and they'll bring people in and buy expensive things and that's wonderful. I have customers like that. Um, People often ask me, do you ever form, do you ever enjoy your calls? And what they really mean, are you jerking off while you're having the phone sex? And the answer is no to that. But I do develop relationships with my customers. Um, I don't mean like we're going off the grid. I don't mean that I'm meeting them in person, but I mean that I'm feeling a connection to them. Um, again, go to my blog. You'll see I, I write up some of those customers too. Um, one of my favorites is uh, I call him bilingual poppy um, because he, he he likes to, he, he's bilingual, Spanish, English. And when I first got him, the first call that I did with him, my <coughs> operator, uh, my dispatcher said, so do you speak Spanish? And I was like, no, actually. She says, okay, I didn't tell him that you did, but he likes to speak Spanish. Um, as it turns out, I have a very good ear for language. I speak three other languages befi- besides English. Uh, he, he started teaching me the words that he wanted to hear. So now I know five ways to say fuck my ass in Spanish, which is fantastic <laughs> and not very transferable, as it turns out. <laughs> so. Um, so he, so bilingual poppy, one of my favorites. I love to talk to him because he's so joyful about what he wants. And his fantasies are, are, are numerous and varied, always around butt sex but also involving cake. Uh, so that's okay, <laughs> cake and butt sex. That's a good combo. Um, I have another guy uh, who I talked to for quite a while. Uh, his name was Larry, and, he, uh, and he, um, he lived in northern Alabama. He told me some of these details. Larry now. Larry was special. The first time that I talked to him, uh, he ordered a 10-minute call. And uh, this was very early on in my career, so I was very eager, and I wanted to make sure I was doing it right. Well, so he gets on the phone, and the first minute, he just wants me to say dirty things to him. It didn't matter what. It didn't matter if I was impugning his masculinity or talking about him sucking dick or sniffing my panties. He was an equal opportunity fetishist, all right? <laughs> so I just threw some dirty words at him, just like blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. And then, and then suddenly, uh, he starts talking about his rhododendrons. And how well they're growing, and you know, and, uh, and we started talking about his garden. Of course, I'm game for anything, so I started talking about, yeah, how's the soil like there? <sighs> I didn't know what was going on. About two minutes before the call ins he said, uh, "I said." Um, I said, so Larry, did did you want to come during this call? And, and he said, oh, no, honey, I came eight minutes ago. <laughs> I just wanted to talk. <laughs> so it's all, yeah, yeah, so it's all like just gardening. So this was his pattern. He would take a minute of this. Of dirty abuse, and then he would talk about gardening, and it wasn't just any gardening. It was like he would want. He occasionally he'd slip back into dirty territory. He'd say, "Oh, I'd love to see you down there, naked in my garden, weeding. I'd just get up <coughs> right behind your ass and mm, lick your butthole." You know, so he would he, he would veer there and then veer back out to roses. Sometimes mm-hmm. he would talk about how he wanted to take me out. He would love to take me out to to Crystal Burger. Crystal Burger's a thing in Alabama. They put chopped onions on their sliders, so apparently that's a big deal. <laughs> but that was his idea of treating me out to a date. He would we would weed his garden naked. He would fuck my ass and then we'd go out to Crystal Burger. So, uh-huh. he had this whole elaborate dating thing with, uh, you know, with me and 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 we, he would talk about fantasy dates and we would talk about what's going on in his life and how his wife was not interested in sex anymore. And and he'd ask about my boyfriends. You must have a lot of boyfriends. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, um, and, and we went along like this for quite some time, like two years. Uh, he, uh, he... You know, was sick. He talked about how sick he was. He had different diseases. He was old. He was late 60s probably, but he was always so cheerful. He called me every month like clockwork. He knew my birthday. I knew his birthday, and he would always celebrate his birthday with a phone call. And uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I, I was li- just flipping through the cards, and uh, I realized that I hadn't heard from Larry in a while, and um. The thing about that, right, is in any other service industry that doesn't involve sex, there's ways of following up. You know, like you know who they are. You might be able to track them down somehow. (laughs) But in phone sex, there is no way that you could call up the number that you have on file and say, hey, how's Larry doing? So uh, he's probably dead. He's almost certainly dead. And um, I wasn't expecting to feel this right now. But he, he's, almost, he's, he's, he's almost certainly dead. It's been a couple of years since I talked to him, two and a half years. And uh, I guess I just wanted to wrap that up by saying um, just because I take money for the work that I do getting men off over the phone, uh, it doesn't mean that I don't miss them in a deeply personal way when that stops. Thank you.
0: Cameron Moore, everybody. And you just totally check out all her shows. They will be amazing. Okay, right. So our last performer of today is, she's do, she is doing two shows as well. Uh, Devil's Doorbell, Adjust the Tonic at the Mash House at 5 o'clock. Uh, she's got some days off though, so have a, a check out her schedule. And Laughter with Jambi McGrath and Guests at uh, 11.45 at the Laughing Horse at the Counting House. And uh, that title kind of gave away her name, but anyway. Put your hands together for Jambi McGrath! <laughs>
3: Thank you. Nobody does tragedy better than me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I used to uh, be rather ignorant, and when they talk about things like collateral damage, I just thought that was something to do with the skin. And then I realised the collateral damage is the baby found suckling on its dead mother. And that baby happened to be my father. On the 18th of January of last year, I was hanging out with my friends, chilling out, having a great old time, and then my father had to loo- ruin it for me by dying. So I get to his funeral in Kenya. That dude. I get to his funeral in Kenya. Someone say something at the funeral that got me onto the path that I find myself in today. So, consider this. The year is 1885, Berlin. A few aristocratic men are gathered round the table discussing the burning issues of the day. No, not European women's voting rights or the prevalence of gout amongst the privileged, but something much more fundamental, the modernization of Africa. <coughs> and you ask yourself, when was the last time aristocratic middle-aged men were in the same category as change and forward-thinking? <laughs> never,
2: <laughs>
3: absolutely never. <laughs> but sat around the table, were Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain having a siesta, <laughs> and Belgium. And on the wall, they have a big map of Africa, and with a pen, they literally drew borders, dissecting whole kingdoms, determining the future of Africans for centuries to come. And what's ironic is that now, Africans are more likely to have a big map of Europe, determining on which borders to cross. (laughs) But at the time, we were nothing to them, but just jungle savages. So it was decided that France would take the western part of Africa that Britain would take the Middle Strip of Africa, that Belgium would take the Congo. And uh, at the time, the Congo was under the kingship of King Leopold II, a nutcase who managed to kill half of the population in seven years. Now, that's careless. 10 million people killed in seven years. I would say that's very careless. (laughs) Germany took the three countries when measured on the map equals to an isosceles triangle. Talk about (laughs) anal. And when wa- Spain woke up from their siesta, that was all that was available. <laughs> <laughs> Goes to show you don't sleep on the job, huh? <laughs> uh, and so it was that Kenya was declared a British colony in 1895 by Queen Victoria, and soon after, uh, the, they uh, and soon after they began building the uh, East African Railway, which began from Mombasa. All the way to the Indian, d- all the way to Victoria, the source of the Nile, but they didn't trust us with our raili- railway building expertise. In 1896, they didn't think we could do it, and so they went to India and brought 30,000 Indians to build the railway. A quarter of those Indians were killed by the lions, uh, the two uh, man-eating lions of Savo, by disease and hunger, and that's how come Indians ended up in East Africa. Uh, but. Um, uh And round about the same time, they sent a guy called Sir Charles Elliot to assess the territory and the people. His assessment of the territory was that the central province of Kenya, with its bright red soils and high rainfall, was easily the best place in the world, and therefore perfect for the British. (laughs) His assessment of the people was that Africans were lacking in each and every way. Until one of the African men dropped his trousers, the whole place went dark. He renamed it the Dark Continent. (laughs) He also renamed the Central Province of Kenya to the White Highlands. The only problem, there was no white people to live in it. So they placed adverts in London, advertising cheap land and cheap labor. The respondents, all Deutonians. And we know what fun those boys can be. (laughs) They also placed adverts in South Africa. The respondents, just the racists. And off to the new frontier. And so now, we had white people, to live in the White Highlands. And the white people, but uh, how about the Kikuyu farmers that already lived there and had done so for centuries? Uh, But getting rid of them was easy. They would turn up, touch the village. The panicked villagers were hoarded into a lorry and, boom, expelled into some desolate land surrounded by barbed wire called the native reserves. What could go wrong? But the settlers settled in rather nicely, the white settlers. They had, wait for it, swinging parties. They had orgies. They turned the central province of Kenya into one huge hedonistic heaven of sex, drugs, and oppressor native. (laughs) So you can imagine the type of decisions they would make for the natives. The natives had no permission to leave the reserves without a special permission. They had to wear an ID with a metal frame around their necks with their names and thumbprint on it. They had to pay not one, but two types of taxes, hard tax and poll tax with no money and no jobs. And if their taxes were not paid, they slaughtered the elder of the family. There is an incentive. (laughs) So, uh, as you can imagine, the uh, reserves became very overcrowded. The Kikuyu became very impoverished. They became malnourished, and now relied on the handouts from the Red Cross. And those are the images that have come to define Africa. Obviously, the Kikuyu became very very angry with the situation. They went to the British and asked them for a bit of land. They were dismissed as jungle buffoonery. So they had no choice but to take up armed rebellion. They formed a group called Muhimu, which the British misinterpreted to be the Mau Mau. And they had no uh, weapons, they had no money to fight. And so they used tactics like attacking those who were loyal to the British. And also they also started killing the settlers who became hysterical they marched to the governor of Kenya and insisted that something be done to the Kikuyu who were ruining their orgies. (laughs) And so, uh, on the 21st of October, 1952, with express permission from Winston Churchill, Kenya was declared a state of emergency. And under the state of emergency, 20,000 troops were brought in from Royal Lancashire Fusiliers, from Royal Northumberland Fusiliers, and from the King's African Rifles. And amongst those were their brightest star, a young man by the man name of Idi Amin Dada. So before he became the president, he worked for the British Army. <laughs> <laughs> they loved him. They kept promoting him. He was an effendi. Before he wanted more, he became nicknamed the Butcher of Uganda. And that was not for his culinary skills. <laughs> and uh, so, under the state of emergency, all the Mau were to be arrested. But no one knew who the Mau were. Because to join the Mau one had to take an oath of allegiance. And because of Kikuyu superstition, that oath was unbreakable, making it virtually impossible to distinguish between those who had and those who hadn't taken the oath. So the decision was made to arrest all the Kikuyus, 1.5 million of them. The white settlers became armed. They formed vigilante groups. Their new motto became, the only way to improve a Kikuyu is to obliterate the lot. They'll be doing up and down patrols, marching. The only way to improve a Kikuyu is to obliterate the lot. They opened their own ad hoc jails and torture chambers. They went all Joseph Rizzo on us. And so it was that my mother, eight years old, was fast asleep in the sack that she used to sleep in. They were woken up in the dead of night by shouting and screaming announcements from the tannoy. My grandmother grabbed her children. She ran outside. The village was on fire. These people had become serial arsonists. They ran to one direction. There was guards with dogs. They ran to the other direction. There was someone shining torches in their faces. They were hoarded into a lorries. Men were separated from the women and children. Men were taken into uh, special lorries to detention centers. Women and children were taken to special villages. So by morning, my grandmother found herself with her children in a field surrounded by wire and a watchtower. And over the coming days, uh, they had to build their accommodation. I've got two more minutes to finish this story so you can imagine the pressure.
0: <laughs> so,
3: so, the women were told they had to build their houses, but until they built their houses, they had to sleep outside. It didn't matter if a woman had given birth or had a newborn baby, they had to sleep on the f- ground. And so, for the next eight years of her life, my mother spent her, her years, childhood, with her, gr- with her mother and her sisters in a concentration camp. They were only released in 1960, when Britain decided to give Kenya our independence. A condition of us signing the independence was that we must never talk about this. So don't tell anyone <laughs> I've spoken about <laughs> this. Good night. <laughs>
0: Jambi McGrath, everybody! And I don't think the reviewers are going to be saying that we don't have enough tragedy in this one, right? Tonight? As they have occasionally accused us in Edinburgh. So yes, now is the time to, 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 to I guess, let's, let's just have a little f- a shake-out emotional stuff said tonight. Good stuff, good idea. Um, yeah, this is... One thing about tragedy is one. the reason we talk about tragedy is to have catharsis as well as just getting sad about all of this stuff because when you come together as a group and you kind of look at this stuff and you think about this stuff and you realise that, yeah, look, we're still alive so we can maybe do something about those sorts of things that we've heard about on this stage tonight. So, yes, and one of the kinds of things you can do, as I said earlier on, is help me survive uh, in my life by putting some money in the bucket. Uh, we will take, uh, uh, We will take paper money. We're not... We're not afraid to take paper money. You, you don't, you know, if, you, if you've got some paper money, don't feel like you'll be offending us by giving it us. Uh, also, you know, like I said, giving back to the arts is an important thing. If you can't give back with money, and that's a tough time, so that's understandable, uh, you can give up, give back by telling people about what we do. Get people to come along to this show and see some more tragedy. We've got different lineups every night, so if you've enjoyed tonight, come back another night, and you'll see a completely different lineup. If you've hated tonight, come back another night, and you'll see a completely different lineup. So yes. That's what we do. Uh, put some reviews on the Ed Fringe website. That might help. Who knows? Let's just throw a penny into the into the well and see what happens. Tweet us at standup for tragedy. And now the tragedy is over.